0: It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 804 for the 5th of August, 2022. This week, you're using Linux right now because it's what runs the TechBiter Worldwide website but you probably aren't using Linux on your desktop or notebook computer. Linux may never take over the desktop market, but let's take a look anyway. In short circuits, people who are looking for a new notebook computer may forget to examine the list of ports on the computer, and that would be a mistake. Adobe Max is back as an in-person event for 2022, but there are still options to attend some of the events online and for free. And 20 years ago, only on the website, setting up a home network wasn't as easy as it is today, and one listener asked for help with her frustrating system. Last week, I mentioned COBOL and how many people use COBOL frequently, even if they're not aware of it. That led me to think about Linux. Linux. Linus Torvalds released the free Linux kernel in 1991. Today, there are more than 500 variants of Linux. I asked if Linux would be the dominant operating system every year, starting in the late 1990s and continuing for at least a decade. Despite its advantages, Linux is unlikely to defeat Windows or even the Mac OS for use on desktops. But you probably do use Linux every day. In fact, you're using it right now because the TechBiter Worldwide website is hosted on a Linux server. W3Techs says slightly more than 37% of websites run on Linux servers and about 20% run on Windows servers. That immediately raises a question because 37% and 20% add up to just 57%. What operating systems are in use in the other 43% of websites? Well, the remaining websites are almost certainly using Linux or Windows because there are no other options. It's just that the w 3 techs site is unable to ascertain which are being used on a lot of sites. The statistics are also limited to the top 1 million websites. Windows is a bit more common in the top 1,000 sites, but Linux leads in the other categories. I no longer ask if this will be the year of Linux because I know it won't be. Net market share says Windows is the operating system that powers about eighty eight percent of desktop computers. The Mac OS is second with a little less than ten percent. Linux has nearly two point five percent. That's third place. Chrome OS and the Berkeley Software distribution Unix combined have less than one percent. And by the way, those figures are as of 2020. Those are the final figures before net market share ended its service. But they probably haven't changed much. In fact, you are surrounded by Linux. Even Apple's website runs on Linux. And you can confirm that if you take a look at Netcraft's records for the site. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The New York Stock Exchange uses Linux. So do the Federal Aviation Administration, the Library of Congress, the U.S. House and Senate, and the Pentagon. If you have an Internet of Things device, you're probably using Linux. Many infotainment systems in automobiles run Linux. Ford, Honda, Hyundai, Mazda, Mercedes-Benz, Suzuki, Toyota, and Volkswagen are among the auto manufacturers that use automotive-grade Linux. And if you wonder what automotive-grade Linux is, Yep, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Most smartwatches and smart televisions are powered by Linux. The operating system that runs Roku's streaming devices is a specialized version of Linux. Chromecast runs on Linux. LG televisions use WebOS, and Panasonic televisions use Firefox OS. Both of those are based on the Linux kernel. Samsung, Philips, and others use Linux-based operating systems, too. Amazon's Kindle Paperwhite and Fire TV both run on Linux, so does Alexa. Android phones run Linux, so about three-quarters of smartphone users are carrying a Linux device in their pockets. NASA's International Space Station uses Linux. That's just a fraction of the places where the Linux kernel is used. But you'll find Linux on only a tiny fraction of desktop computers, as I mentioned earlier, about 2.5%. One of the reasons why Linux usage is so limited is the huge number of versions, or distros. Linux is the operating system's kernel. The user interface sits on top of the kernel and provides, among other things, the user interface. With more than 500 distros, how can anyone choose? But if you're thinking about trying Linux, keep these names in mind. Ubuntu, Mint, Fedora, and Debian. Want an even shorter list? Okay, Ubuntu and Mint. Ubuntu offers desktop, server, and Internet of Things versions. It includes LibreOffice, Firefox, and Thunderbird along with the distro, and there are some games included too. Ubuntu is one of the more customizable distros available. Linux Mint includes LibreOffice instead of OpenOffice, Firefox, and other common applications. It is generally seen as having a user interface that Windows users can quickly and easily adapt to. The App Store will be familiar to Windows and macOS users. There's also a built-in software manager that can be used to search for applications and install them. Microsoft Office cannot be installed on a Linux computer directly, but it can be installed using Wine. The alternative, though, is just to use Microsoft 365's web interface. Outlook, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, OneNote, Calendar, and Skype are all available, and files are saved to a OneDrive account by default, so they're accessible from other computers, phones, and tablets. One common problem for Linux users is the lack of drivers for some devices. When I installed Linux on an older Windows computer that had a defective Wi-Fi system, I bought a USB Wi-Fi adapter from a Linux-aware company, but it didn't work when I plugged it in. The vendor and I both spent far too much time making it work. Support for proprietary device drivers is much better now than it was a decade ago, though linux system updates are a little different from what windows and mac os users are familiar with microsoft pushes out big updates twice a year minor updates on the second tuesday of each month and the occasional out of cycle emergency update apple updates the mac os annually linux systems though can receive updates for the operating system and all of the installed applications at any time whenever an update is available it'll be presented As a result, you'll probably see more updates, but the frequent updates address security and operational problems faster than Microsoft or Apple can. Some people caution against Linux because it's open source, not proprietary. Windows hides what it does, and the macOS is even worse. Anybody can download and examine the Linux kernel and the user interface components. More people looking means that security flaws are found faster. Problems are reported quickly, and the problems are fixed. But open source software has no support, they say. That's actually false. Some Linux distro providers, such as Red Hat, sell support. The operating system is free, but the users pay for the support. And open source software without paid support usually has active and robust user forums where people answer each other's questions. Have you tried to get support from Microsoft or Apple lately? I've had mixed and mostly negative results dealing with Microsoft support because sometimes the technicians know less than I do. My objective today is not to convince anyone to drop the Mac OS or Windows and install Linux, but anybody who wants to give Linux a try should do so. Installing Linux on a Windows computer is easy so long as you don't try to second-guess the largely automated process. ZDNet offers a detailed explanation, and HowToGeek has instructions specifically for Mint. You'll find links to both of those on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If you're using a Mac, well, I don't have any experience installing Linux on a Mac OS computer, but the Mac OS kernel is BSD Unix. If you want to give it a try, Linux Hint has the instructions, and you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? short circuits, anybody who's thinking about buying a new computer has doubtless thought about the processor, the memory, and the screen. Maybe the keyboard, maybe the video output options, but there is one more important consideration. Ports. Making sure the computer you select has the external connections you need is essential. You'll find them on the sides and the back of notebook computers. Some manufacturers place some on the front, too. Space is limited on notebook computers, so you won't find the selection or the quantity that could be added to a desktop computer. Most notebook computers will have a 3.5mm audio jack, but few have jacks for audio input. If direct audio input or output are essential, confirm that these jacks are present Audio inputs and outputs can also be connected via USB, which is the system I use, even though there is an output jack present on my notebook computer, or they can be attached via Bluetooth. Nearly all notebook computers have either a DisplayPort, a Mini DisplayPort, or an HDMI video output. Usually, there's just one, although manufacturers of Windows computers really should follow Apple's lead and provide two Mini DisplayPort ports. The video port makes it possible to connect a large monitor, or two, and you can use that instead of, or in addition to, the built-in monitor. Even though notebook computers usually have Wi-Fi adapters, many still have Ethernet ports. I consider an Ethernet port to be essential. You may not. Adding Ethernet later is possible and easy with a Thunderbolt or USB to Ethernet adapter. SD or micro SD card readers are common. These accept memory cards from digital cameras and other devices that have removable cards. My previous notebook computer didn't have a memory card slot. The new one does. It is handy, but because USB card readers are so inexpensive, the absence of a built-in card reader wouldn't be a deal-breaker. There's probably not a notebook computer that has no USB slots, and many computers have several. At least one should support USB 3.0. USB is the most common interface for external disk drives, printers, and optical disk players and burners. USB-C and Thunderbolt ports are showing up a lot more frequently. I consider these to be essential because they can be used to connect a dock that includes connections for a variety of external devices. The computer may have other ports, including an old-style DVI or VGA video connector, micro-USB sockets, and the nearly ubiquitous Kensington lock slot. Unless you're using old video hardware, there's little reason to seek out a computer with those DVI or VGA connections. Micro-USB devices aren't particularly common either, and there are inexpensive adapters to convert a standard USB port to handle a micro-USB device if you have one. And the Kensington lock slot, well, it's sufficient if all you need to do is keep an honest person or an inept thief from stealing your hardware. Otherwise, not of much use. After two years of being a virtual-only event, Adobe's Worldwide Max Conference will be held in Los Angeles over four days in October and as a two-day virtual event this year. Attending the virtual conference continues to be free, and the in-person event is priced at $1,895 with a $700 discount for those who register by the end of August with a special discount code. Students can register for $300, COVID is currently not a pandemic, but it is endemic, and Adobe says that attendees joining the in-person event in Los Angeles will need to be fully vaccinated and may be required to provide proof of vaccination. Much can change between now and mid-October, but face masks are not currently required in Los Angeles. Adobe will make face masks available for those who want them, and attendance is being limited to provide for social distancing. The in-person conference includes pre-conference events on the 16th and 17th of October. The Pre-conference events do cost extra. The conference itself starts on the 18th of October and ends on the 20th. The virtual conference is a two-day event starting on the 18th. Users who register for the virtual event can create a free Adobe account or log in with a Facebook, Google, or Apple ID. And you'll find a link to the registration page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. More than 200 sessions are being presented, and Adobe will probably make the recorded sessions available for later on-demand viewing. The schedule planner has been improved a lot this year with powerful filtering that makes it possible to limit the sessions users see to just the ones that are of most interest to them. This makes preparing a schedule much more straightforward. Anyone who uses Adobe products or just wants to know more about the company's offerings should consider attending the conference either in person or for free online. Adobe Max won't have any sessions on setting up a home network. But home networks were challenging in 2002. That's the topic you'll find in the 20 years ago section on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blynn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com. And if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.